Well, today, millions of people all around the world are gathering, like you and I, to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. It's the central uh, point of Christianity. It is the linchpin that Paul tells us in which the Christian faith stands. And he explains uh, in his letter to the Corinthians saying that if Christ has not risen from the dead, then all of this is in vain. And we're basically the most idiotic of people to believe these things if Christ has not been raised from the dead. But indeed he has. You know, we gathered on Friday evening to celebrate Christ's death as we uh, looked at Scripture and we worshiped together and received communion together, bound together by his blood. In Good Friday celebrations are always nice because we kind of get to linger in the, in the Lord's presence. But there is a sense of there's, there's not resolve there. We leave on a bit of a somber note. Because it, it, it looks at that point to the watching world to be hopeless. The same as same situation that, when, that would happen if uh, anybody that we would have known would have died. They, that would have been it. And in our minds, it's, it's resolved. But that's not the case with Jesus. A few days later, on Sunday morning, Jesus defeats death. Conquers the grave. He is raised from the dead. And so this morning, we want to look Briefly at, that, at this passage in Luke 24, and a couple implications of the resurrection. I'm excited to go through this with you, but we'll look uh, at this first section as the God who keeps his promises. And we'll look, secondly, at the God who is faithful to his people. And lastly, the God who invites his enemies to be friends. The God who keeps his promises, the God who is faithful to his people, and the God who invites his enemies to be his friends. We find in Luke 24 a reminder of this promise. The promise of the resurrection. This is what Jesus has said he would do. He told the disciples and the angels even remind the women who come to the tomb. They say, remember how he told you when he was with you. The disciples needed to be reminded. Now, if I was hanging out with Jesus and I was uh, afraid of losing him, the one thing that I maybe would have remembered that he said if he died, he would come back. Like that would have been like, maybe hold on to that piece. But that that doesn't seem like what happened here with the disciples. It, It appears to me that they are overwhelmed with grief. They've never experienced any such thing. Now they've seen Jesus Uh, raised Lazarus from the dead just a a bit earlier. But someone being raised from the dead is much different than a resurrection. Lazarus was raised from the dead only to die again. But here in Luke 24, we see that Jesus is resurrected. He is raised from the dead never to die again because he himself has conquered and defeated death. He will not face that enemy again, for he has won. 
Now we find the women coming to the tomb in verse 2. They're making their way in the uh, the beginning of the week, bringing spices. And it says they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now this was probably a bit of a crazy sight for them to see. The stone likely weighed around two to four tons and was about eight feet in diameter. So this wasn't really a, uh, you know, just something to move out of the way real quickly. This was uh, something massive. Now the stone is rolled away so that the women might have access to see the empty tomb. This is the power of the resurrection, that Christ has risen from the dead and that the tomb is empty. You see, we find later when Jesus appears to uh, the disciples, they're gathered together and he shows up in the midst of them. Right? He doesn't knock, just boom, straight through the wall there. Jesus didn't need the stone to be rolled away. Clearly, he had the ability to just pop into the room when he felt like it. This didn't seem like a problem. But this gives us a bit of a pattern, a foreshadowing of what should be done with the resurrection. You see, the stone was rolled away so that you and I might have witness to the resurrected Christ, and then what do they do? They go and tell. That is the job of all believers, all who find life in Christ. When you you encounter the resurrected Christ, you are sent out to go and proclaim this amazing thing that has happened. That Jesus has been raised from the dead, and in his death, And in his defeat of death, we have freedom from condemnation, from sin, and from death. Now they go in, in verse 3, and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. So they go in expecting to find a dead man. Right? This is pretty normal because... Up until this point, one out of one people die. Like, pretty good stats. There was no expectation that someone wouldn't be dead. But here, they go in expecting to find a dead man. And they find these two men, it says here, in dazzling apparel. The other gospels tell us that these two uh, men are actually angels. And angels are messengers of God. They are the first ones to proclaim the birth of Christ. They, uh, they uh, break into the world proclaiming that Christ is born. And now here they are the first messengers of his rebirth, the resurrection, his defeat of death. And here again, we see the pattern. They're there to proclaim what has happened. And here's what they say. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. This is the message that they bring. And this is the message that all Christians bring. Because the world is doing exactly what these women were doing. Seeking life. In a world of death. Building their kingdoms. Trying to find 
a, a way to make an identity, a name for yourself in this world, thinking that this will bring you life. But Jesus tells us that the only way to save your life is to lose it for his sake, to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow him. See, the power of Easter is the resurrection. Not just that Jesus is missing. It's not just that there's an empty tomb. But they indicate he is not among the dead. He is alive. He is living. And if you want to find life, you have to go to the one who is the source of life. Jesus is alive. He, the angels go on to remind them. In uh, Verse 6, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified on the third day. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and the rest. Now Jesus had told his followers he would be killed on the third day. Or he would be killed and rise on the third day. This was his constant communication to his disciples even so much so that in uh, mark 8 peter gets the idea that he doesn't really like what he's hearing that jesus is going to die and he says like no lord like i will I, I i won't let that happen and jesus has to rebuke him he has to to highlight the fact that peter the reason that i've come to the world is to die this is my purpose in coming here I don't need you to keep me safe, Jesus would say. But he wants Peter to understand. It's exactly in my vulnerability and my submitting myself in laying down my life that you will find your safety and security. Jesus communicates this in Mark 10.45. He says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't come to be safe, to be secure. He didn't come to receive, but he came to give. And here he has indeed given his life as a ransom for many. And our servant king, he rules through the cross and the power of an empty grave. God is faithful to his promises. He said that he would defeat Satan and sin. He said that he would be the one who keeps the covenant. And he has indeed done that. He pays for our sin at the cross. Crucified in our place to save us from slavery. He saves us from bondage to sin and death. Now, God's faithfulness here in this promise is remarkable. But what he accomplishes through his promise to rise from the dead is amazing. His promise is really powerful. And I want to give you a couple quick things that are accomplished through the, the power, through his resurrection. The power of his promise. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that God's power is demonstrated through the resurrection. In verse 19, it says, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, 
according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at, the right, at his right hand in the heavenly places. See, it was God's power on display, demonstrating his might, his authority, when he raised Jesus, but also seated him in heavenly places. Uh, Peter echoes this in Acts 2. He's, he explains to the multitude on the day of Pentecost that God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Like, that's so hardcore. I love that. It was not possible for death to hold Jesus. He is more powerful than death. Through the resurrection, the sonship of Christ is declared. His deity is confirmed. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's confirmed to be the Son of God, fully God, fully man. In Acts chapter 13, speaks of the keeping of this promise and Jesus' sonship. Verse 32, we bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, here's this covenant promise, that he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, he is truly God and truly man. This is a confirmation for us. And because Jesus is God, he's not to be compared with other great rulers, other great men of the earth. He's not on an equal playing field. He's unique. He's not to be compared uh, with other famous religious leaders and say, you know, well, they're really on the same level. That's not the case. He alone has risen from the dead. He is the only one who has conquered. And we see God's confirmation on Jesus at the resurrection. This is one of my favorite quotes, and I, and I think it's uh, something I return to often. Uh, Dr. D.A. Carson, he explained it this way. God's final verdict on his son is not seen in the cross, but in the resurrection. I think it's a great way to explain it. His verdict about who Jesus is and how complete his work is, is not seen in the cross because anybody can go and die. Anybody can go and die and say, you know, I'm really going to pay this price for you all and die. Boom, there it is. We don't really know if it was ever paid. But it's the resurrection of Christ that shows God's verdict because it's God's work. He is the one who raises Christ from the dead. And the lordship of Christ is declared through the resurrection. In Romans 14, 9. 
For to this end Christ died and lived again. That he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. What Paul tells us there is that nothing is outside of the rule of Jesus. His lordship stretches to all areas of life and death. Back in Ephesians 1, Paul writes similarly, elaborating a little bit more. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Jesus rules and reigns over all things because he has been raised. It's through his resurrection that he receives this uh, lordship over all things. Now, here's one, though, that I, that I want you to hear, and you know, maybe this is one you want to mark down, because for me, this is the one, probably the most convicting one. 2 Corinthians 5.15. I have to return to this one a lot because I'm a selfish person. And he died for all, it says, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, the resurrection puts Jesus as Lord over all, but when we hear all, we hear everything else, but not me. Everything else that, that we really want him to have control over, that's what he is, should be in control over. Those things that seem wild and untamable. Yes, Jesus, take those. But it's really our own selfish hearts that need to come under the Lordship of Christ. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He died so that we might live for him. Through his death, through his resurrection, he destroys death. 2 Timothy 1 tells us that he has destroyed death and brought life. In Hosea 13, we have the prophecy of what Jesus would do. Hosea 13, verse 14. This is the most gnarly verse. If I was ever going to get a tattoo, I would get this one. But I'm afraid of needles, so that's just not going to happen. This is so hardcore. I love it. Hosea 13, 14. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Like, that's just, that's just so gnarly. 
We've been studying the book of Exodus and we've seen how, how uh, crazy these plagues are and they're going to increase in frequency. But now we see here in Hosea that, that there's this prophecy that, that death itself will have a plague, that there will be a judgment on death itself. And Jesus does this through his resurrection. He destroys the grave. O grave, I will be your destruction. And it's Jesus who confirms this for us when we look all the way in the book of Revelation in chapter 1 when he's talking about writing these letters to the seven churches. He says, I died, Jesus' words, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. He has conquered. He has defeated. And the Bible states, it says that Jesus not only died, but he went through death. He came out the other side. And these are all things that the resurrection accomplishes. And all of these things, of course, benefit God's people. But the resurrection of Christ shows God's faithfulness to his people in one specific way. And we find this description in Romans chapter 4. So if you want to flip over there, because you want to highlight this one, you'll come back to it. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. It tells us that the, through the resurrection, we find our justification. This tells us Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. These these two parts, first paying for our sin, but then being raised for our justification. Now the resurrection... It proves that God is satisfied with the death of Jesus as removing our sin, our guilt, our condemnation. See, Jesus did not have to stay dead to pay for our sin. His suffering, his death were sufficient. And the resurrection is God's declaration upon you and I that it really is finished. We don't have to keep striving. We don't have to keep trying to make a purpose for our existence here. That's what the world is doing. Everyone in the world is trying to make a name for themselves or justify their existence. Here's why I'm really valued. Here's why I should be existing. Chasing different things. But the resurrection tells us that we are valued by God and we have a new identity already in Christ. And so we don't need to chase other things. We can enjoy the things that God has given us, but we don't need to find our life, our purpose, our identity, our value in those things. Through the resurrection, we are justified. The debt has been paid. Justice has been done. Our guilt is removed. 
through the resurrection, God is faithful to his people. And that he gives us the power to live for him. Let's just be honest. Being a Christian is really hard. There's just, if you are trying to obey God, if you're trying to obey the will of God, if you're trying to follow what Scripture tells us to do, it is always hard. But He has given us the ability to succeed in this through the resurrection. He's called us to this new way, this new life, so that we would not operate in our own power, but through His strength, through His ability. Romans 6.4 tells us that we've been called. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. You see, the point of the resurrection is so that we might have new life, not so that we can continue in our old life and continue to do what we you know, really want to do, to be Lord of our own life and, and rule our own life, but that we might have new life in Christ and especially recognize him, recognizing Him as Lord of all. A couple chapters later in Romans 8, Paul continues and he writes, But if Christ is in you, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. That's this justification that we're talking about. There's justification because of the resurrection. In verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see, because of the resurrection, we no longer have to be separated from God. We can now be near to God when we find our identity in Him. So much so that when we trust Him for salvation, Scripture tells us that He gives us His Holy Spirit to dwell within believers as a guarantee. Because let's be real, like we need a guarantee. You know, I don't know how many times... I, I grew up in the church, so I don't know how many times I was like, I don't know if I'm really a Christian. I don't really know if like, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But then there's the Holy Spirit working, the life, working in our lives, telling us, no, you are a child of God. You belong to me. He is our guarantee. Because of the resurrection, we have the power to live for God. God is faithful to his people, giving us both justification And enabling us through his Holy Spirit to live for him. 
Now, lastly, we look at a God who invites his enemies to be his friends. The Bible starts out in a garden. In the Garden of Eden, we see the ideal relationship between God and man. Adam and Eve, they enjoy an intimate friendship with God. It describes them as spending time walking together in the garden, in the cool of the day. Enjoying God's creation. I don't even know, like, I can't even imagine, like, how cool that was. To walk and talk in God's, like, original creation with Him. It was epic. And we were made to live in God's continual presence with Him, much like Adam and Eve. But after that fall, after the sin that was committed through Adam and Eve, that friendship was broken. And that separation was a huge problem. So much so that Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. They were put outside and there was a angel guarding the entrance to the garden. There was always a barrier, a separation between uh, God and man. And if Adam and Eve would have tried to enter back into the garden, the angel would have take, taken his, uh, I guess it's a flaming sword, and, and would have struck them down. They would have been under God's judgment. They went from being intimate friends of God to being enemies. Now this is the story of the Bible. God and man at odds. Man continually trying to be God, to create his own identity, opposing God. Man as the enemy of God. But because of God's great love, the story of the Bible is also God's, this narrative of God trying to demonstrate his love and make a way for that friendship to be restored. We find on Good Friday that Jesus changes the situation completely when he pays for our sin at the cross. And there that constant reminder of separation between God and man, the veil that was in the temple that would separate man from the presence of God was torn. That as the, the sword of judgment came down upon Jesus at the cross, the veil was torn and then again there was access for God to be friends with man once more. Paul describes this work this love that God has in Romans 5. Flip over there, we'll, we'll end with this.
for a while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That is the, the atmosphere in which God is performing his love. Upon those who were his enemies, those who did not deserve it, not people that seemed like they would really, uh, you know, if they were entrusted with salvation, like hope you, hope you do well with it and, you know, I don't want you to waste it. But here are a bunch of irresponsible enemies who hate God and says, I'm going to do something beautiful for you. I'm going to show my love. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have now received reconciliation. There's these increasing levels saying, perhaps... If someone was like a nice person, then maybe someone might be like brave enough to die for them. Or maybe if someone was like a really huge like philanthropist and they were just giving tons of money away and they were helping the world, maybe somebody would die for that person even if it was like coming down to it. And then in verse 8 we have the turn. But God, he dies, he demonstrates his love. When everyone hated him, he was like, I'm going to die for you guys, even though you don't care about me at all, even though you have no desire to know me, even though you are dead in your sins, I'm going to die for you. He wasn't receiving anything out of it. It wasn't like, well, what's in this for me? Nothing. There wasn't, we weren't innately valuable to him, except that he set his love upon us. We are the recipients of that love. In verse 11, uh, it ends with a great description of this. Uh, well, another translation puts it a little bit more simply, and I, and I like this. The NLT explains it this way, verse 11. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. We have the ability to know a God who invites his enemies to be his friends. And it's only possible, it's only brought about because of the grace of God and the sacrifice of Jesus. It's through his resurrection and the life 
that he gives. We'll read one last verse together. And Jesus ends it with a question. I I want you guys to let this linger in your mind, this question, as we go into our time of response, as we go through uh, the rest of today and into this kind of coming Easter season. In John 11, 25, he's dealing with the death of Lazarus. He's dealing with Mary and Martha who are freaking out because Jesus wasn't there and Lazarus has died. She's losing it. And Jesus responds to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your resurrection. Lord, we're thankful that you have defeated death, that you have conquered the grave. You have destroyed our last enemy. And so, Lord, this morning we want to celebrate that. We want to continue to proclaim your praises as Lord of all, as you rule and reign over all things, over creation, over the earth, over our lives. Lord, we want to be submitted to you. And Lord, you've told us that you are the resurrection and the life. And if we trust in you, we will have life. Lord, we want to respond this morning to your question. Yes, we believe it. Yes, we desire to have new life, to be justified before the Father because of your work, your death, and your resurrection. And Lord, because you've been raised, because you're Lord of all, we want to proclaim that together now as a response. We want to sing of how wonderful you are, all that you've done. Set our eyes upon you. Have your way in our hearts, Lord.